Welcome to the podcast, How to Be Well and Strong. I'm your host, Jacqueline Genova, and I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with some of the leading figures in the fields of wellness, integrative medicine, and mental health, as we discover what it truly means to be well and strong in both body and mind. Get ready to be empowered, inspired, and motivated about being an advocate for your own health. It's that time of year again. You may be able to hear it in my voice, but I too have succumbed to the common cold, probably as a result of insufficient sleep and a little bit of travel stress. I know, I know, I need to practice what I preach, but I figured it would be a great opportunity to have an episode on how we can support our immune systems to avoid getting sick. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Paul Anderson on today's episode as we discuss some of the foundational pillars of a healthy immune system, as well as daily practices to help strengthen your immune function and prevent illness. Dr. Anderson is a recognized educator and clinician in integrative and naturopathic medicine with a focus on complex infectious, chronic, and oncologic illness. In addition to three decades of clinical experience, He also is head of the interventional arm of a U.S. NIH-funded human research trial using IV and integrative therapies in cancer patients. He founded Advanced Medical Therapies in Seattle, Washington, a clinic focusing on cancer and chronic diseases, and now focuses his time in collaboration with clinics and hospitals in the U.S. and other countries. Former positions include multiple medical school posts, professor of pharmacology and clinical medicine at Bastyr University, and chief of IV services for Bastyr Oncology Research Center. He is co-author of the Hay House book, Outside the Box Cancer Therapies, with Dr. Mark Stengler, as well as a co-author with Jack Canfield in the anthology Success Breakthroughs, and the Lioncrest publishing book, Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. He's also co-author with Dr. Osborne and Carter of the textbook, A Scientific Reference for Intravenous Nutrient Therapy. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Paul. Well, first of all, Dr. A, it's so nice to finally, I mean, virtually see you. I know that we've been in contact for what, the past three years or so? You first contributed an article on the five truths every cancer patient should know. So I'm truly just excited to finally sit and speak with you. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, when I, when I was looking back at the, at the invitation for the podcast, I kept thinking, cause I, I do a lot of podcasts and I kept thinking, boy, that name sounds so familiar. And then I went back. Right. Well, Dr. A, I just started this podcast this May, so you could say it's still relatively new. It's, it's pretty young, but I've, I've had about 30 episodes so far. It's been quite the journey. I'm still learning. I'm a novice, but I've really been enjoying the conversations I've had so far. And again, just being able to sit and speak with the people that I've been in virtual contact with for so long. Yeah. Well, great. Yeah. I'm, you know, I think I've been doing my podcast for probably nine years and it's evolved a lot over that time. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's not for everybody, but it can be a lot of fun. I know I have listened to a few of your episodes on your podcast, which quite honestly is where I got the idea for today's topic. And I will be honest with you, it took me a while to decide on a topic for our conversation because I know one of your focus areas is integrative oncology, which happens to be one of my passions. But for the sake of giving listeners a break on Cancer Talk and in the spirit of the holiday season and winter months that are fast approaching, I opted to focus on how we can optimize our immune health and avoid getting sick. Yeah. 
that's that's a really good topic for this time of year. Um, and you know, the, what I what I normally tell people is that e- even though I guess because of the books, I'm more known for integrative oncology. The <clears throat> my practice has always been half cancer patients and half chronically ill people. Uh, so it it keeps me on my toes. Um, and the you know doing cancer gives you a lot of insight into immunology on its own. But then when you deal with chronically ill people who don't have cancer, they have a whole host of other immune issues that uh, are some crossover with cancer, but but they're very they're a lot uh, more complex, really. So like prevention and how to keep your immune system actually working and all of that. Uh, that's all. You know, it's all a big part of what I wind up doing anyway. I mean, the timing of this conversation is quite ironic because you may or may not be able to hear it in my voice. I came down with a little cold the other day, um, most likely as a result of lack of sleep and travel stress. So unlike my current situation, my hope is to help listeners avoid getting sick. The more we can do, the better, right? Couldn't agree more, Dr. A. Everything's related, right? I mean, I had a conversation last week on the topic of autoimmunity and what is at the heart of that, you know, a poorly functioning immune system. And I'm not sure if I shared this with you or a few years ago, but my mom was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer back in 2018. And she's really been the catalyst for my even starting Well and Strong. It started off as a means for me to just share the research I was doing for her and her cancer journey, you know, from an alternative and complementary standpoint. And she's been doing a lot of immune boosting therapies like high dose IVC. And even other patients I see in those offices are not necessarily being treated for cancer, right? But they're looking to just optimize their immune function. So definitely a lot of crossover. Oh, yeah. No, I do remember that actually. Um, from from our probably our initial conversation, I reach out to you all the time with questions, and you're very kind to answer them. So, well, that's it, there's an awful lot of questions I get every day. So that you're you're in the group, maybe that uh, I actually do get to see. So that's good. Well, Doctor A, I always love to start with the basics. So, what is the immune system, and how does it work? So. The immune system, unlike other systems that are a little easier anatomically to identify, like cardiovascular, your immune system is a combination of uh, immune cells and then the places that the immune cells come from, like the bone marrow and other places that they mature in the body. But what we often, and most people know that like white blood cells fight things and, you know, we've got other parts of immunity that are fighters or maybe calm things down. But what we forget is that the coordination of all of those cells and their production and maturation, and then do they go out and do they kill things or do they uh, take things to other parts of the immune system or do they actually calm down your immune system? All of that transaction is done through the behest of a bunch, a bunch meaning hundreds of chemicals. And most people didn't really think about these much until COVID, really, where these chemicals started to be in the news. So people heard about like interleukin-6, and that that was associated with in the early days with bad outcomes of COVID or something. So interleukins literally mean talking between white blood cells, right? And they do other stuff, too. 
then you have other chemistry we've been hearing about, uh, mostly because of COVID too, like tumor necrosis factor. And you think, why is there a tumor thing with an infection? Well, it turns out it was discovered eating tumors. That's how it got its name. But uh, it actually works in your general immune response as well. So the immune system is literally just about everywhere in your body. And it exists uh, because of places that make immune cells, like the bone marrow. And then there's places where those cells mature, which could be bone marrow or could be in your thymus with the thymic peptides. But the orchestration of your immune system is the reason you're even alive today. And what I usually tell patients is if your immune system's really working, you don't notice it most of the time. It's actually recognizing, you know, bad guys uh, that come, uh, viruses and bacteria and things, and taking care of them before you even get any symptoms. And it's done by not only the cell part, but these hundreds of chemicals that talk to everybody and kind of just like an orchestra conductor, tell all the cells when to act more aggressively, when to calm down, or when we only need this kind of cell or this family of cell. So it's really, uh, it's an amazing system. And when we feel sick, let's say you, you know, this time of year is a great time to talk about this because it's, uh, they call it cold and flu season. Um, Let's say you're having that happen and you get, you know, the sniffles or a cough or a fever or something like that. That's all you noticing your immune system at work now. And usually it's because there's something the immune system hasn't seen before. Uh, like the common cold is a, is a common virus, but it mutates every year, which is why you can keep getting it over and over, right? Well, the reason you get symptoms from that, the reason you get a new influenza comes along, you have, you have high fever, something like that, it's because your immune system says, well, we don't really remember this bug, and so we're going to have a very aggressive response to it to try and do two things. One is to kill it, but then the other is to build up some memory. So if it comes around again, uh, we can squash it before you even notice. So. The immune system, and there's, you know, because there's hundreds of, of factors that make it work, there's hundreds of ways it either works really well or it can kind of go wrong. So that's what makes the study of immunology so uh, uh, so hard and so deep. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's truly so fascinating. And is it true, Dr. A, that over 70% of our immune system is located in our digestive tract? A huge part of your immune system and actually your nervous system as well is located in your digestive tract. Um, I'm not sure exactly on percentages or if they even really know, but our our digestive tract, um, and I always like to bring those two up together, we have a digestive enteric nervous system that's actually as complicated as your brain is in some instances. And we have a enteric immune system, which you think about it, aside from your respiratory passages, your digestive system is is the portal to the outside world. You know, you eat and drink things and they come right into your body. So if you didn't have a really good immune system all the way through, we'd probably get sick more than, you know, more than we think we would. And the interesting thing with the digestive system is it has highly specialized and sometimes different immune um, 
organ or cell types, et cetera, as you go through the digestive tract. So each part does a different job, right? And so there's immunity that's, uh, that's, that's more local uh, to each job that's being done. So one of the problems that comes up, especially let's say you've had some chronic health issues or, or maybe, maybe cancer or maybe autoimmunity or you've just been chronically ill. You might have a lot of therapies that have damaged the GI tract immune system, which is kind of comes with the territory of treating those diseases. And what we'll forget sometimes is that it, that anchors the rest of our immune system. So if, if the gut goes down and the gut immunity goes down, the rest of the body then kind of has to overwork in a sense. So I think it's always good to remember that we're always working hard with people after, you know, let's say you've had a, a bad infection, you had a antibiotics or something, we're always working hard to kind of get the GI tract back to working normally again. Or let's say you had chemotherapy, which can be very hard on the GI tract. We're always working hard to, you know, rebuild because it's so uh, central to immune function. Yeah. And, and the other important thing is the gut immunity and the gut nervous system talk to the general immune system and the general nervous system and they have a relationship so if one of them is sick the other one's out of balance that's why it's all the more important for patients to take probiotics if they're on an antibiotic side story my mom started taking doxycycline um, as a means for cancer and obviously you have to weigh the benefit versus risk profile right. but doxy obviously can compromise gut health but i think in her case there's more benefit than risk but in the same vein, I'm always telling her, you know, ensure you're, you know, eating fermented foods. You're taking your probiotic. You're you're optimizing your gut health. So we touched on the importance of gut health, clearly, in in having a strong immune system. But what are some of the other key factors that contribute to strong immune function? So I was, you know, speaking to patients, especially because you're. You know, our understanding of the immune system has evolved a lot. Now, the immune system is the same one we've had for at least hundreds of years, but um, our understanding of it has really evolved and kind of broadened out. <clears throat> so I often like to start with patients and remind them that what, what, what we used to kind of call hygienic measures are the way that the body stays in control anyway. And there's a direct response between your sleep patterns and immunity. And in modern times, people, you know, suffer from chronic sleep deprivation or sleep cycle interference, all that stuff uh, for a number of reasons. But sleep is, um, to simplify it, is, is one of the times where your immune system actually can kind of recharge. A lot of your organs do sort of a clearing out overnight, uh, and the immune system kind of gets to reset. So if you take somebody and you sleep deprive them long enough, their their immune response actually becomes unregulated or poorly regulated. You know, and and this is why, although it doesn't always happen this way, th this is why. Let's say you've had a rough work schedule and or then you throw, you know, some travel in the middle of it that disrupts your schedule. And then you're exposed to a whole bunch of, you know, new people with new bugs and all that. At some point, your immune system's working as hard as it can, but something's going to get through there. So 
sleep is huge. Okay. So, uh, the, and, and one of the harder things to do, I think in modern life is to get good sleep and get good sleep cycles, but it's, it's very important for that. Um, so sleep, a big hygienic sort of baseline measure, um, actually staying hydrated. And there's more research on this. People have said this for hundreds of years, but there's research now, even in, even in the big world of oncology, that uh, and I'm, it only makes me laugh because it just sort of is obvious, but but someone did research to prove it that <clears throat> the more hydrated you are, the more likely a couple of things are going to happen. One is that your immune cells will be able to see and recognize things easier, and the other is that the cells can actually sort of get the good stuff in and and pump the bad stuff out more easily, quickly. And if then those are oversimplifications, but if your cells build up a lot of debris <clears throat> because you're dehydrated, they are going to be weaker and more of a target for pathogens and things. But also, uh, if you think about it, when we're hydrated, not, not just our blood has more fluid in it, which is nice, but the place outside our cell where a lot of immune activity goes on, the extracellular space, if it gets real thick and clogged up because we're dehydrated, the immune cells have to move through there. And the more dehydrated you are, the slower the movement is, and so the slower the immune response can be. And vice versa, the way out of the cell goes through that same pathway so getting rid of the junk is harder. So hydration and sleep and, you know, people are always like, and, and certainly we have many, you know, natural things and other stuff to help with the immune system. But if you don't build the base, you know, or if you're beating up on your body too much, your body will let you know, you know, that we've, we can't handle it anymore. We need some rest or we need whatever. So rest and hydration. And then another one that uh, is getting more play now, I think social media probably is better, uh, is uh, body movement. And this, again, goes to really core, you know, core research just around survivability, which is related to your immune system and other stuff. And it doesn't, you don't have to be a marathon runner, but what basically all of the movement science says, if you boil it down, is your, your larger muscle groups should be working a little bit extra every day. Now, some people have jobs where that happens, and so it's not a big deal. But if your job is sitting all day, you know, your large muscle groups are not really moving very well. And what we see is that that is related to, uh, you know, if you look at the other end of the spectrum, <clears throat> related to more health and more survival, but it's also related to kind of that those factors I was talking about with hydration where our our body has this backup system to the blood uh, to the blood vessels called the lymphatics and they uh, are sampling our, our tissues all the time and the reason they're sampling it is they take the excess fluid off so if you have some bacteria or viruses or whatever out there some of that will get filtered through your lymph and it'll go to the lymph node where there's a whole bunch of immune cells. And they'll say, we've either seen this guy before, so they'll send out some memory cells or some memory proteins against it. Or they'll say, gee, we don't know what this is. It's probably bad for us. We should do uh, something to fight with it. So again, if you're dehydrated, you don't move your lymph well, 
but your muscles are what mostly move your lymphatics and because they're very low pressure. So in addition to like probably a hundred other factors about why your muscles are good for you moving, um, the just the physical movement of lymph back through so that your immune system stays on top of who's there. So you got, you know, exercise, hydration <clears throat> and sleep. And then of course, diet is a whole, you know, a whole topic unto itself, but what we put in for, uh, for fuel, uh, and we could probably talk a lot about that part. <laughs> Who would have thought? And I think it's funny that, I mean, to your point, you know, it's so obvious, but people actually have to go out and execute the studies for folks to actually, you know, turn their heads and pay attention, especially in the conventional space. And everything you said too, I had a Dr. Perry Nicholson on the show a few weeks ago, and we spoke about how to optimize the lymphatic system. And he touched on those three things, sleep, water, and movement. But to the point on nutrition, this very well could be a topic in itself on a whole other episode. But what are maybe some of the key foods that you would prioritize during these winter months where people, you know, may be more predisposed to getting sick? So with, you know, with food and there's the obvious need for us to eat so that we can get the fuel we need to run our cells and make energy and all the biochemical things we do. So obviously the food has to have enough of the macro and micronutrients to do that. So that's sort of a, that's sort of a given. Now you can get really into the weeds. And and again, especially in the internet age uh, where everyone has, you know, we've always had opinions, but now they're public. Uh, And you can get really, um, Diet is a very contentious topic to talk about, right? And it usually starts from the top down of, well, you should only eat these things or or not eat these things or whatever. But again, kind of like the hygienic discussion, if you really look at what affects your immune system, let's say you're getting enough, you know, macro and micronutrients to run the system. Okay, so that that would be a, a balanced type of diet, whatever type of diet you like, it would be a balanced one. There's two primary factors, and then there's a bunch of little ones that will have downstream effect on the immune function immediately. And they're getting harder to manage in modern times because of reasons that will become fairly apparent. One of the factors is that the what we eat and drink is the primary way into our body for... Uh, toxins and toxicants, which there's a little bit of difference between those two, and just other chemistry that our body isn't familiar with and doesn't like. When we get those things in, and it's because there's no clean place left on the earth, there's there's really, you know, you, you have to go out of your way to get clean water, you have to go out of your way to get food that's not super contaminated, etc. And you think about it, we're eating one, two, three times, four times a day, right? Uh, so if if every time we put food and drink in our mouth, there's chemicals coming in with it, our body is not really set up. We haven't evolved long enough to, to deal with those chemicals that didn't exist, you know, 50, 60 years ago. There's something on the order of like, I don't know, 30, 40, 50,000 chemicals that didn't exist when my parents were young people, right? So it's like, that's a short amount of time for humans. We've got good functioning livers and kidney and all of that stuff and uh, great, fine. Uh, but the load that we take in now is just exponentially higher. So 
the reason I bring up chemicals first is there's sort of two sides of the coin. One is the negative that if our body is dealing with those and trying to process them and get them out of the body, that takes up uh, energy and actually cellular activity that the immune system could be using, but it's being diverted to deal with this chemistry. And some toxicants in the world that we might get on food or drink are kind of treated like a foreign invader, depending on where they are. So they actually can take up, you know, uh, immune reserves. The other side of the coin, though, is even though there's no clean places left in the world and all that, the best thing you can do for it, aside from having a good working liver and kidneys, is decrease what you're taking in from your diet and the liquids that you drink, right? So in my mind, it is worth getting some kind of way to either filter your water or buying filtered water, that sort of thing. Um, It's well worth doing as clean a food as you can find. And, uh, you know, and there's, so there always comes a discussion when you get to this, it's like, well, gee, you know, the organic stuff is so expensive. Uh, You know, on, on one hand, you could say, well, being sick is pretty expensive too. But the other side of it is, there's a really great resource called the Environmental Working Group, which is just ewg.org. And they have, uh, they started with the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15, and they've added to both of them. So it's Dirty Dozen Plus. Uh, And what I tell people is at least look at that. And if you eat things in the Dirty Dozen Plus list, put put your money into buying those as organic or, you know, or grow them yourself, whatever you have to do, right? The Clean 15 okay, you can probably not worry so much about those things because the the, the amount of, of, you know, treatment of produce is just amazing uh, out there in, in a bad way, right? So you can kind of allocate your resources towards organic to the stuff on those. Uh, and I always recommend people take a look at that, just be educated, you know. Um, but if you think about it, since there isn't a great clean area left anymore in the world, if we decrease our intake, then the body has less to do, right? It's got less to process. It's always going to process something. But as you mentioned earlier, the gut is the first thing that gets beat up by those chemicals because we eat them or drink them, right? So the gut immune system is sitting there trying to deal with these things. Then they get in the bloodstream and the liver and the kidneys. Everybody gets involved. So the less of that, the better. So a clean diet, a clean as you can do, first priority really so and and that doesn't matter that you could be any type of diet you want right well whatever you like right um you'd still clean is good on the other side of the ledger though is you could have clean food going in but if the food triggers your inflammatory system so if the food is pro-inflammatory then it could still be clean food, but it's triggering your immune chemistry to get all, you know, kind of up in a frenzy. And when your immune chemistry is in a frenzy, it's not going to respond to bugs the, the right way, right? And the the biggest, the, now there's many things that we could pick on here, but the biggest predictor of immune excitation in the bad direction by food is things that stimulate your insulin response, Okay. So if, and that's kind of looking, whatever diet type you like to do, it's looking at it and saying, 
we need to find a, a low insulin stimulating, a low glycemic type of a diet, whatever I'm eating, so that I'm getting a lot of good stuff, but my insulin isn't spiking and bouncing around. You know, so if you, you think of like the simplest thing would be, you know, you're uh, you're eating you know candy bars all day long or, or sugar or something like that. Obviously, your insulin is going to bounce all over the place if you're doing it. Your immune system doesn't have a chance when that's happening because insulin, yes, it helps the sugar get into our cells. But but when we have extra insulin, it doesn't do the sugar thing. It just roams around and creates inflammation in our body. And and so, you know, we're, whether it's a cancer patient, whether it's a super critical <clears throat> or someone just trying to prevent illness, we give the same advice. It's, you know, whatever way we figure out to, for you to eat, keep it clean and then have it be as, uh, you know, as adequate insulin uh, triggering as possible, but not don't overdo it. And, you know, a lot of times what happens is you start getting sick and your brain tells you you need comfort and a lot of comfort food in our brains is maybe not the greatest food for us. Sometimes it, I mean, it depends on the person, you know, I, I, I like chicken soup and that's probably okay. But, but like, you know, I've also been, you know, getting something and you're achy and you feel yucky and you think, uh, I don't want to eat anything, but you know, fill in the blank, you know, like a donut would sound nice or some, a piece of cake. Like that's exactly the wrong direction to go. So, but if you kind of boil them down, insulin triggering diets are inflammatory because beyond the requirement of the body for blood sugar, insulin's just pro-inflammatory. Toxicants in your diet basically trigger inflammation and other stuff. And and then if people are really like long-term planning. And they're like, uh, so we do this a lot with people in what we call secondary prevention in cancer, where they're in remission or there's no evidence of disease or something. And they say, I just want to be super healthy. Well, we'll do that little wrap I just did. And then the third thing would be, you know, foods you're just sensitive to that make you inflamed. Um, there are some people who have that and some people don't seem to have that sort of thing. But long term, short term, it, it may not make as much difference, but long term, if if a certain group of foods or a certain type of foods you actually have a allergic or sensitive response to, you're just better off not putting them in your body. So that's sort of the, you know, that would be, you, you want to just stay healthy. I think I would look into that. And to that point, Dr. A, is there a reputable company that you trust to perform those food sensitivities? Because I feel like, I mean, again, nowadays, the prevalence of all of these self-testing kits is just, it's gone a bit haywire and it's kind of hard to determine, you know, discern who to trust. What's your take on how to best identify some of those sensitivities? Yeah, that's, that's always the zillion dollar question, really. Um, The, so try and shorten up a really long discussion um there's a there's a difference immunologically between a food allergy and then a food reaction or sensitivity and this is really well laid out in like the allergy immunology literature they recognize it happens that there's two kinds of ways we react to foods but they don't quite know what to do with it because the allergy is pretty obvious, okay? You get a high IgE like Edward, 
response to a food and you, you might have anaphylaxis or an allergic reaction, something like we usually know about those foods, you know, it could be, you know, anything, but you know, like shellfish is common and, you know, other things are common there. So those are kind of obvious usually, and you can do very specific testing for that. When you get to the other, so Ig means immunoglobulin, it's from your B cells, which are part of your immune system, and they make proteins. Uh, we used to call it the humoral system. They just call it antibody system now. But the B cells make these proteins, and they are immunoglobulins or immune immune big proteins, you'd call it. They, they look like a Y. And what they're supposed to do in your immune system is go out and attach themselves to bad guys and mark them so the immune system can either eat them or send them away or something like that. Allergy is a misdirection of your immune system. And so if you have the IgE type, the type 1, that triggers a bunch of inflammation, which is why you can have anaphylaxis or bad allergic reaction and almost die or die or bad things happen. But then there's other ones that are made like IgG, like George, and IgA, like alpha. Those two can cause a general immune kind of inflammatory situation that generally doesn't make you have a true allergic reaction or die or anything like that, but they can be very imbalancing to your immunity. So there are tests that can be done for IgG is the most common one, and then IgA is a little more common nowadays. And so I'll just tell people, look, if you're going to get an IgG test or an IgA test, um, they can be very useful to tell you kind of what's not good for you to eat. It's a sensitivity. It's not usually the same as the deadly reactions from IgE, um, but they're sort of a, they're very reactive. Okay, so if you do one of these send-away tests, and uh, I just, just yesterday I had a family member, you know, texted me and said, hey, I'm going to do a food allergy test. So I said, oh, which one? And, uh, you know, they sent me the name, and it was just one you get online. And I said, all right, just, just keep in mind. It's like that's going to tell you something but it tells you just kind of what uh, it, it it doesn't tell you the whole. It's a picture. snapshot. Yeah, and and the other thing is those tests, um, which is not a bad thing. Those tests change over time. So like IgE, I'm going to die from it. Doesn't change much over time. IgG and IgA tests. Uh, if you're just overdoing a food that's inflammatory for you, you'll have a lot of IgG or IgA to it, right? And that's not a bad sign. It might mean maybe my body just doesn't respond well to this food and I should get it out of my life for a while, you know, and you'll be less inflamed. That's fine. But you do that test a year later and you've been avoiding the food. And in most cases, IgG and IgA will be much lower because you've just not been challenging yourself. So the send away tests and, and I don't want to get into who and all that stuff, but you just need to keep in mind that they're a snapshot of a more of a sensitivity reaction. And they can be very good for guiding, you know, let, let's say you're trying to recover from whatever. And you just want to have as the least amount of inflammation from your diet as possible. Those tests can tell you, okay, eliminate the high reacting foods and you'll be less inflamed, right? They probably won't kill you, but you'll be less inflamed. The only other advice I would give, because there's just so many companies doing this now, is do a little checking on the company if, it, if it's an online company. 
Um, there are some that the that the lab is actually processed by uh, a a larger lab. So you you might be buying a kit from a middle person, you know, sort of a an in between company selling the kit. Look at the lab who's actually doing the, you know, running the test. Uh, and if the lab has been around for a fairly long time, they'll usually on their website have comparison data or outcome data, something like that. Uh, and and that's the advice they usually give people if they're just going to go out and look for a test to do, um, it, which is a little bit, you know, because you think, oh, well, gee, here's a food allergy test. I can just order it right online. That's the good part. <laughs> the other side of it is you want to make sure the lab's actually being done by a lab that knows how to do this type of test. So just do a little due diligence looking into it. Um, but but there are, uh, I mean, there's there's not like, there's a handful of companies on, online that do this. Some of them use very reputable, you know, labs that do this type of testing to actually run the test. And that's what you really want, you know, because yeah. those, those tests can have some variability. But, but I think it's important to remember there's allergy, which is usually bad reaction or anaphylaxis. And then sensitivity can be these immunoglobulins like GNA. But it can also just be like your body doesn't like that food. You have normal IgG, normal IgA, but you still get sick when you eat the food, which is why the allergy doctors prefer you, you like you do elimination and challenge testing, which is a lot more of a pain because <laughs> you got to kind of take all these foods out and then challenge them one at a time. But the reason their logic is because there's so many things that aren't, you know, uh, B cell driven that make foods bad for you, why not just, you know, why not just see if you, you react to it and it has to be out of your body for a while to do that. So there's a lot of ways you can do it. Um, a lot of times after you just remove foods, like well, someone might do an IgG, IgA test, they remove the foods, then they try them again, you know, six months later, some of them they don't have a reaction to, some, you know, the next morning their joints are swollen or the next morning they're really stuffy or whatever. And then you kind of know, well, that food, pro I probably just should not do that food um, long-term. But, you know, the bottom line is like food is necessary for life. So we were eating, like I say, one to four times a day or more. Um, and it's, we forget it's such a fast way in for these inflammatory things that, that hurt our immune system, like toxicants and, you know, and insulin triggering and, and then potentially sensitivities. So to that point, Dr. I, would you say that restricting our feeding window is beneficial for our immune function? So there's been so much research on the benefits of autophagy, which we know is a state that usually kicks in between the 24 to 48 hour fasting period. And while several studies have suggested that short-term fasting can boost immune function and protect against certain infections, my understanding is that the effects of prolonged fasting and refeeding on the immune system's ability to respond to pathogens is still kind of unclear. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting with fasting because, again, kind of like the discussion about hydration and they're doing more research about it. Um, traditionally, 
you you see fasting that was either a bit shorter or longer, whether it's cultural or religious or or, or just sort of a, a healing tradition. You know, you go back more than 50, 60 years. Um, and those were often done as a way to, you know, pause uh, things going into your body and let your body clear stuff out, et cetera. Long-term fasts, meaning two or more days, but I, I've seen, you know, there are fasting centers where they're medically supervised where people might fast for a number of days. And as long as you're hydrated, you can do that. Uh, and you have someone watching you who knows what they're doing. But long-term fasting kind of has one set of biology, and it can be helpful uh, if you're medically supervised kind of in extreme situations. Um, what we know now, and we have, we have this handout we use with patients to kind of graphically get them to think about diet, and it's, it's like a pyramid. The base of the pyramid, which has changed over time, but the base of the pyramid on ours now is to do a daily 12 to 13 hour fast with just water. And I just tell people, look, you're going to be asleep for most of it. So it's not that big of a deal. And, you know, after dinner, you just drink water and then go to sleep. And in the morning, just take a little bit extra time. You get to 12 or 13 hours. And in this started with our cancer patients, but it works the same way for the rest of the immune system. Um in 2017, I think, we were finishing up writing our first oncology book, Dr. Stengler and myself, and they, it was one of those great things where we put a lot of research in there, and they, they came out with a human study because the, the slam on fasting had always been, well, it's not, the, it's not great human studies. But they come up with one with breast cancer survivors, and it, so it was real live humans. It was, you know, the people were talking about cancer survivorship, and what was interesting was they, they took a group of breast cancer survivors who were in remission, and then they didn't change their diet at all, which was, it was, I mean, probably not the best for the patient, but it was great for this study because everybody got just to eat whatever they wanted. But one group, it was unlimited feeding time. The other group, they just had a 13-hour window where they only had water. Okay, so intermittent fast every day. And there was a 33% uh, increase in survival just by not eating for 13 hours. And, um, and since then, more data has come out. But the, the autophagy effect, the longer you're not eating up to a point, the more autophagy happens, so which is, is either cell repair or cell removal, if it's bad cells. But that actually starts at about 12 hours. So it doesn't take that long. Like we, we but, you know, kind of like I was saying, we, it's easy to get like a highly toxic diet in modern times. We also, you know, most people have more access to food than we ever have as humans ever, you know, in the history of humans. And so the idea that, um, you know, we just restrict our eating a little bit, you know, during a 24-hour period would be helpful, probably was going on naturally, you know, for a long time for people. So you, you really start to gain the benefit around 12 to 13 hours. 
And the way I look at it is now if we, we'll have patients that come and they say they want to do an induction fast and we'll check them out, make sure that's all okay. But usually that's going to be two or three days. And an induction fast is a little different. That's where uh, basically what I say is you're getting your immune system's attention when you do that. So you're just getting water, you're staying very hydrated, but you know, no calories, no food going in, you know, for 48, 72 hours. That shifts your immune function enough so that then when you restart eating, uh, it's you have a faster trip into cell repair, autophagy, and all the other things that go on. But on the other side, there's some people who can't do that, you know, for many reasons. And so the reason that the 12, 13-hour fast is at the base is almost everybody can do that once you coach them into it. And if you do that every 24-hour cycle, you are much more likely to have a long-term beneficial effect from intermittent fasting, you know. And so there's not a bad, like, I mean, unless you do an unsupervised fast and hurt yourself, there's not like a bad fasting window. They just do different things. And I always try and think, well, what can the patient actually do the longest amount of time? And intermittent fasting is probably the easiest to incorporate into your lifestyle. I know at a certain point, right, fasting also increases your cortisol levels and cortisol can induce chronic inflammation. So I guess my question is, is 48 necessarily better than 56 or 72? I mean, you know, you said that 12, 13 is ideally what most folks can do, but. Yeah, if, if someone, like I was saying, what we would call an induction fast is usually 48 to 72 hours. Um, and there's two reasons for that. One is that's kind of the window in which, yes, you'll get changes in certain biochemical parameters, but mostly it will push your immune system to the to the place where it's easier to recognize damaged cells and just junk in your system and all that. And you'll start to eliminate. But the other thing is is really more medically for safety purposes there are reasons to do longer fasts than 72 hours. But if you're going to do that, um, there, are, there are fasting physicians and centers that will monitor you. And, and I, I would never have somebody do longer than 48, 72 hours without a, kind of a higher level of monitoring. Uh, and they can be done very well. And the thing is that, like, not very many people will do that, right? But these the centers where they have very good medical monitoring and so they make sure you're safe you can get kind of an accentuation of a 48 72 hour effect by doing a longer fast now the thing about cortisol um if you do anything different your cortisol levels will bounce around okay and so Yes, they may go up or they may actually go down depending on how sick you are, but they will tend to rebound after time because your body kind of has a set point. So they may rebound, though, back to whatever your set point is. So if you're chronically ill, that is either too much or too little usually. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so that's another thing about monitoring that you kind of need to do. It's why, you know, generally speaking, because we we deal with people with cancer and chronic illness, we generally say, look, the minimum, if you really want to follow what we think is a good way to go, is a daily intermittent fast, then we'll coach you into that. 
if they say, great, but I want to do an induction fast, then we'll figure out whether they can do, you know, 48, 72 hours. We'll do that and then roll them right in, check them out. Um, and, and I think that's the most doable for the most number of people, really. Uh, but, yeah, fasting is, I mean, it's been... It, as far back as we have history of humans, they've done fasting for various reasons, you know, and, and it's, it's like, it's, it's not unsafe done correctly. Uh, the longer you're going to fast though, I always tell people, the more you want to be in touch with somebody who's checking on you and kind of knows how healthy you are and all that. No, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of fasting, particularly in the context of treating cancer. And I know that it works very well when done in conjunction with other therapies like high-dose IVC or hyperbaric oxygen. So you and I could have a whole other episode just dedicated to that topic, yeah. but it's good to know that it comes in handy when you know yeah. trying to prevent illness as well. Um, and one thing too, Dr. A, that I always love to kind of juxtapose in whatever topic I'm chatting about is the conventional versus integrative approach when it comes to treating different ailments. And I find it interesting that, again, even with acute illnesses, conventional medicine just treats the symptoms with over-the-counter medications, which really fail to treat the underlying cause and can have negative effects like dehydration, sleep interference, et cetera. So with that, do you have any natural alternatives, perhaps to some of the conventional treatments out there? So for example, I read that spirulina can actually be a great natural alternative to Sudafed because it's been shown to actually reduce inflammation in the nasal passages. I'm going to be trying that later today, so my listeners can stay tuned <laughs> to see how that helps me. It's a that's a very uh, wide topic, okay. Um, but just to kind of be specific about a few areas, being that we're kind of focusing on, say, cold and flu season stuff like that. If you if you're doing the other things as best you can with the sleep and hydrating and you know all that. Um, there's a number of things that become important uh, under two circumstances. So, you know, so people argue about, well, is it cold and flu season or is it just because we're inside more and we're sedentary and we're eating more food and all that stuff? Regardless of what triggers cold and flu season, it is a season. Um, and so prevention is super important. And like we talked about at the very beginning, we fight off bugs every day and we don't feel it. That's that's our immune system doing its job. During, say, cold and flu season, let's say everyone at the office has some bug that's going around, right? You're going to be more exposed to it. So your immune system, you may not get sick, but it's going to work a lot harder. So the first thing beyond those hygienic measures of eating and drinking and all that and sleeping that I always tell people is the first thing you want to look at is what's the first thing to leave your body when you're getting sick. And there's tons of research on this. And it's the one thing in your immune response that your body can't make itself. And that's vitamin C. We have to consume vitamin C. Other animals make vitamin C we lost the enzyme at some point, so we can't make our own vitamin C. And people say, well, is it really that important? Well, there's two reasons. There's a bunch of reasons, but two big reasons. One is, if you look at any group of sick people, okay, when, when they're getting acutely ill, their vitamin C levels go from the little bit we need to keep running to like zero, like immediately. So, so 
What that means is that we know that the process of getting sick sucks up all your vitamin C. If there's not enough going into you, you're, it, it's not the only thing, but it's going to keep you sicker. And because your body can make some of the other stuff or can store and you know recycle some of the other things that it needs, vitamin C becomes the weak link. And one of the things that helps, um, vitamin C sort of does many things, but it helps with the forward-facing immune function, meaning certain white blood cells and certain recognition uh, cells in the immune system have to have vitamin C to work correctly. So if I'm getting sick and my vitamin C levels go to zero, my immune cells now are missing a real core piece. So the forward-facing, you know, don't let it come in is, is hurt. But then the internal immune regulatory system also uses vitamin C for other reasons. And they always talk to each other. The, you know, the, the don't let it in part is always communicating with the inside to say, let's speed up a little bit. Let's ramp this up or whatever. So <clears throat> vitamin C is just so critical in all those points. And it's almost like, you know, we in the popular media, people heard about vitamin C in colds for, you know, for 60 years. So people almost think, oh, is, is it really that important? It's actually that important because when you're when you're around sick people, what you don't realize is, oh, good, I haven't gotten whatever's going around, you know, the office yet or whatever, or my family's all sick. Um, your vitamin C levels are trailing down, you know, e even with a pretty decent diet, they're trailing down. So vitamin C becomes super important as just a base. Um the other thing is, is that vitamin C, we, we hear more about this during COVID, vitamin C works together with zinc and other trace minerals, which are a little, you know, easier to keep up in your body. And you get those uh, from a, a lot of, you know, I mean, they come in meat, obviously, but they come in a lot of vegetables too, the more dense, darker vegetables, et cetera. So you really need to make sure that you get the baseline nutrients. And then from then on that, you can build the other things. So you mentioned like spirulina, uh, which has a whole number of, it's a, a super concentrated food source of just a lot of really good nutrients. And that can be useful for a number of things. Um, you had mentioned like congestion, things like that. What I've seen with folks is if you're using it for, it can be used also for general immune support. It will work better or, or the other, say, plant medicines and things will work better if the baseline is still covered, like we're getting enough vitamin C and we're making sure we get enough minerals in to back it up and all that stuff. Then like the plant medicines really can shine and do good. If you take somebody who's super sick and you give them a plant medicine those things work in concert with your body and your immune system so if the immune system's kind of hamstrung it's not going to you know not going to play ball as well with with the with the herb or, or whatever you're taking but so i'll start with the basics spirulina is is one really great add-on for people um there's a number of other things too that people can do that really were very common not that long ago meaning you know 60, 70, 80 years ago and before, uh, which you could categorize under, say, hydrotherapy. So steam inhalations are very good because it gets into all your passages. And you think about, like, you know, people's 
in my case, parents or maybe grandparents or great grandparents, depending on how old you are. Um, that was very common, you know, to do is to have steam with a with a an aromatic essential oil, you know, like eucalyptus or some other thing. And you literally would breathe it in and actually makes you feel better, et cetera. But something that in, in North America, we don't talk about a lot uh, just because it's North America, I guess. But in Asia and, and Europe is, is actually researched is these oils that people have inhaled, you know, and you got to do it safely, obviously, and all of that. But but especially like eucalyptus and some of the other, uh, you know, plant-based oils. They actually also kill bacteria and, and they decrease viral adhesion. They do all these other things. So it's not just like, you know, you immediately sort of feel better when you do that. But it also is killing stuff, like right where you breathed it in, you know. So and, and almost everybody can do that. I did those very two things last night. I took about five packets of liposomal vitamin C and I put a few <laughs> drops of oregano essential oil in a pot and I boiled it and I just inhaled. And quite honestly, I think that's why I'm feeling much better than I otherwise would have yeah. had I not done those two things today. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And also one thing too that I try to incorporate on a daily basis is morning sauna session. Yeah. And saunas boost the immune system by promoting both heat shock proteins and white blood cells. And I recently read a study that looked at the effects of a single finish sauna session on white blood cells and cortisol levels. And it basically found that one 15 minute sauna session can increase white blood cell profiles and adjust cortisol levels in ways that were, you know, really beneficial for combating infection. Yeah, he, heating your body up or heating and cooling, you know, kind of classic hydrotherapy, uh, hugely effective on your entire body, which, uh, you know, again, we sort of lost uh, connection to that, at least in North America. Um, the other thing which which is less brought out in research, but that is also true about sauna, even short sessions, is we talked about how much toxic and slow down your immune system, you actually will get rid of toxicants based on the research, whether they're metals or chemicals faster with a, with some sort of heating sessions, some kind of sauna, et cetera. So <clears throat> if you have access to doing that, that can be quite useful. Um, the other thing, just, you know, sometimes people say, well, there's I've no sauna, I can't get to one, whatever. Um, Anything you do to get your body core temperature up can give you similar benefits. And so I've had people where they it's just impractical or there isn't a sauna nearby or whatever. And I'll say, well, you know, what do you do to move your body? And it's I, I take a, you know, a jog or a fast walk or something like that every day or whatever they do. And I just say, just put one extra layer of, of clothes on so your body's going to naturally heat up faster and you're going to sweat more. And actually, that can give you similar benefits. Now, obviously, if you have a sauna, it's easier. Uh, but, it, you know, whatever you do to get your body core temperature up uh, will give you some of those benefits. So almost everybody can do it if, you know, if they can move around. Yeah, or even a hot bath, right? Wouldn't that also increase your core body temperature? Yeah, that's another thing that's sort of interesting is people say, well, you know, hot a hot tub or hot bath um, you know, how much is that going to do? Well, there's actually 
they research everything, right? Well, there's actually research that shows you're moving as much fluid through and out of your body as you almost do with a longer sauna session in hot baths. And we don't think of it that way, but it, but it's actually doing that. So yeah, you, if you have a tub, you can, you, you can also do that as well. Add some Epsom salt in there and you're on a whole other level. Yeah, You'll be more relaxed too. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go, Dr. I see simple, but effective practices and jumping over to the topic of vaccines. So I myself have never had the flu shot for a few different reasons, but I'm really curious. What are your thoughts on that annual shot that so many people get today? And is it even effective? Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's, there's a few levels to think about the flu vaccine. Um, the first one, so if, if we if we rewind time to before COVID, right? So there's the life before COVID and life after COVID. Um, the biggest concern that we always had about efficacy of the flu vaccine, which is, is still the same, it's just, you know, we're in a different time period, was they they have to kind of forecast or you could say guess which strain of flu is likely to make its way around the world the next year right so because it's sort of like we said in the beginning the reason you can get the common cold over and over is it it mutates and it's it's the same family of virus but it's not the same virus when it gets to you same with the flu right so if if i'm sitting and i'm trying to forecast what, you know, what's coming. Um, there's data all over the place, but the getting the right strains into the flu shot to protect you, so to speak, from influenza is a bit of scientific guessing and a bit of a roll of the dice, really. And so that's the first thing is the efficacy can be based very much on did we guess the right strains this year or not? And so that's the first thing is, well, if you're going to do something that's going to exogenously, you know, from the outside, make your body have an immune response, whether it wants it or not, um, but then it's going to sort of miss the mark when the flu comes around, you know, how much difference is that going to make for you? And that's something everybody has to decide for themselves. But there's also research that's, again, you know, I, I think a few years before COVID probably that basically showed that being attentive to hand hygiene and other sort of hygiene measures, but especially regularly washing your hands uh, was as effective as getting the flu vaccine at preventing the flu. So, you know, there's data out there that shows that it, the the culture in, in North American medicine, for the most part, in certain other parts of the world, is that, you know, nobody should ever say anything negative about any vaccine. Um, and e even to the point that where, you know, like I'm, and I try and be very centrist with these things, but on my podcast, sometimes I'll just present data that, that says here's something else to think about. And it's not from me. It's from, you know, real live researchers and stuff. And I'll get private messages from doctors saying, well, you should never, you know, you shouldn't create vaccine hesitancy. It's like, well, I think people should just be informed. You know, they, they, I think people should be informed. You should make your own decisions and you should do it with some competent healthcare provider. 
because uh, every, you know, every vaccine is, it's not like vaccines are one thing, you know, if I'm, you know, preventing smallpox or something like that, that's sort of a different deal uh, than maybe influenza or something like that. So uh, um, it, it's, yeah, so it, it, if you say anything publicly at all, the culture is, well, you, you just shouldn't do that. Like you, 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 sh you really like in, I could show you messages where it's stronger worded than that. You know, you, you shouldn't do that. And it's like, oh, look, all I'm doing, I was just providing information that has been published just so people have a broader view of what's going on, you know. Um, and the system, the way it is, um, meaning the medical system, it's kind of, and I'm old enough to remember when it wasn't this way, um, the like vaccination schedules and and the flu vaccines, they've just become part of what everyone does. And each practitioner is supposed to do it exactly the same way, and each institution is supposed to do it the same way, so that they 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 capture as many humans in the same you know schedule as possible, right? And if you're looking at it just from a numbers point of view, well, sure, you're going to capture more, um, but you know, my personal thoughts are each vaccine needs to be individually assessed as to is the risk and benefit worth it for me personally as a human? And it might be, you know, uh, you know, and there's tons to do with that, like your overall health. Can you do other things when you're sick? Is it is it is it actually going to prevent that disease? You know, there are examples of vaccines that were supposed to, you know, prevent spread and then they didn't. Um, and so we always have to think of, okay, you know, it's, 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 it's never hundred percent yes or no. It's, does it match what I need or what my patient needs or something like that? So I think, you know, it's always tricky. Um, but there's so many things that can be done to help your immune system, uh, whether you're vaccinated or not, um, through this time where we're assaulted with more bugs, uh, that we should we should focus on doing all the stuff to help we can, regardless of the other factors. I love your approach. And I mean, again, sadly, it's such a divisive area that it is sad that people can't necessarily be vocal about that because to your point, you'll get messages from, you know, X, Y, Z. And I think a lot of doctors, at least it's been my experience, refute hardcore evidence because it doesn't comply with their own theories. Right. And knowledge right. is power. So if someone yeah. messages me, what are my thoughts on certain vaccines? I will share that with them. Um, I'm not necessarily as vocal about that as I would like to be just because of the environment. But yeah, it's it's a tricky area. It's very tricky. And, you know, to put yourself in the in the shoes of a, a doctor working in an institutional system, you, you really do not buck the trend of whatever your institution says you're supposed to do. And, you know, there are people at tier one medical school, academic institutions who are very well-respected researchers, and and they'll even come out and say something sort of contrary to the prevailing. And, uh, and, and probably only because of their standing, they still have their job or whatever, but like they get more pushback than, than anybody else, you know? And it, so it's just, it's something you have to be careful with, but I think if you, if you reverse engineer it to, there's almost, you know, I mean, outside of emergency medicine, 
for the rest of medicine, nothing is nothing works all the time, and nothing you know very few things work none of the time. Um, it's is that right for you? Whether it's an antibiotic or you know whatever, it's like is, is that what you actually need? You know, and that's kind of the way I counsel people to look. It's it's about you, your immune system, and the therapy, and do they all match up, or don't they? You know, so. Also, too, I mean, you can find quote unquote like evidence to support almost any claim, but I really think it's it's the humble ones who are always learning and using phrases like may possibly and you know perhaps most of all I don't know are the ones to to really trust um, in the space. Yeah, yeah, and one more thing I, I want to touch on with you, Doctor A, is is fevers. So we've been talking about prevention for the most part. But now let's say someone actually comes down with a cold and has a fever. The very purpose of a fever is to increase our body temperature, as we were discussing, you know, like doing with sauna therapy, Mm -hmm. so that it's challenging for intruding viruses and bacteria to survive. And I've been reading a lot lately that's made me question the whole concept of fever suppression and how suppression with medications can actually work against the body's natural healing process. What is your take on that? Yeah, um, you know, fever suppression is really only a a product of the modern era in in humanity, okay? Um, Fever suppression, the way we think of it in in modern times, kind of started in the early 1900s uh, before the the big influenza pandemic, et cetera. And there is some evidence from even way back then that people that had their fever suppressed with influenza versus not might've had, you know, worse outcomes, et cetera. Um, But the, the reason now you think about, you know, fever in your body is a necessary response. I mean, we, it, it comes because of the body needing it. And the fever increases enzyme activity and your white blood cells and other things like that. And so it is necessary. Now, that's juxtaposed with the fact that it is uncomfortable. <laughs> the higher your fever goes, the you get achy and you don't want to move and all of that. And that's chemistry being released to tell you to go to bed or to, to hibernate, right? Um, so... Fever does have a normal arc it goes through in most people. There are, obviously, there's certain people, people with certain types of epilepsy and other stuff where fevers are very dangerous. But generally speaking, left, if you look at the physiology of humans, your brain has a feedback mechanism where it really won't let your fever get to a dangerous point, okay, with the exception of certain diseases and, you know, there's some exceptions. So fever can be managed. Now, what did people do before the 1900s with fever? They, they generally, they had botanical medicines. Most of the medical doctors used tons of botanical medicines. Uh, I, I have books from those eras, and it's it's mostly herbal, herbal medicines and other stuff they would use. And there's some botanicals that can be helpful and homeopathy and all the, and, and hydrotherapy. Um So all of those things can be helpful, and you can do things to help with the discomfort, too. So you'd you'd mentioned, you know, baths and things earlier. 
sauna can be very helpful with discomfort of fever, even though it seems like you're heating yourself up more. Um, there, there's an old practice from, again, the, the medical tradition uh, called a brand bath, B-R-A-N-D, brand bath. And that's where you have a fever, and, it, and it's not, not cold plunge, but it's sort of a, it's a tolerable lukewarm bath, right? You're hot. You might be shaking because of the fever chemistry. You get in there, and basically that sort of about body temperature, a little lower bath, diffuses the heat out of you, and it kind of helps your body work through the fever faster. So that's another thing that can be done to make you feel better. And there's other things in the hydrotherapy world that can make you feel better. But here's something that people don't know because they, I don't know why they don't promote it more. Um, about 10 to 12 years ago, maybe a little longer because time flies, uh, I periodically go to updates by the Infectious Disease Society of America. These are real smart people about infectious disease. Now, they we disagree on certain things, but... But these, like, these people know a lot about infectious disease. And somewhere around probably 12 years ago, they started to try and change the culture in hospitals around suppressing fevers. And these people, one of, one of whom was, or two of the people teaching, were like former presidents of that association. And they said the hardest thing for them to do as infectious disease doctors in the hospital is to get all the other doctors and the nurses out of the mindset that they've had for 100 years, which is all fevers are bad and we must suppress them. So the infectious disease doctors who are at the top of the food chain as far as infections go are going around and saying, no, don't give them anti-fever meds unless they have certain diseases. Don't, don't use cooling devices, which they have and other stuff. And they said, we know that the fever is important. We're infectious disease doctors. We don't suppress fevers unless there's certain criteria met because we know that the outcome of the person after the fever is better. But the entire rest of the medical system has learned the other thing, and it's going to take three generations before anyone in medicine believes us. And, and these are like I say, the top of the food chain of all infectious disease. And they're basically saying what, you know, the people when I long, long time ago, you know, trained in naturopathic medicine had always said, which was if, if you don't have to, don't suppress the fever, you know, make people comfortable, but try not to suppress the fever. And most of the like herbal things that people take for, you know, comfort, helping through the fever or hydrotherapy, et cetera, they don't suppress the fever. You know, if you give someone steroids or aspirin, Tylenol to a degree, those sort of those do actually suppress the fever. And so then your body is sort of caught in the middle saying, well, we're trying to have this immune response, but now we're not having a piece of the immune response. So we're going to hopefully we get through it. Right. So so it's, it's just interesting that standard medicine, uh, the infectious disease part of standard medicine agrees with that. But everyone has been trained for a hundred years that fevers are very bad, and it you know it's just tough. The first thing I think of, I mean, similar to fasting, fevers are healing, right? And I think of Coley's toxin, which 
one of the agents in Coley's toxin is a lipopolysaccharide, which causes fever, right? And we've seen cases documented of people with stage four cancers who experience a fever and then essentially all of their tumors go into remission, right? And there's no other explanation for it. So it's, yeah, truly, truly fascinating. It's, it's you know, fever, fever medicine or heat medicine um, has really undergone a big change over time. And again, North America is a little slow to the game. But I just a few months ago ran an a oncology conference and we had a, 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 one of the world experts, in my opinion, in fever therapy speak about different aspects of fever as medicine. But they also do actual hyperthermia treatments, you know, so it's sort of like sauna times 10, <laughs> you know, it's medically managed. Um, and I've worked, I work in other countries with hospitals and, you know, that maybe have a little broader uh, menu of things to do with people with infections or cancer. And fever therapies are in all of them, you know. And uh, I've, I've, I've taught with radiation oncologists, say, from Europe. So it's a hardcore group of people. And they, they also, because they're radiation oncologists, do hyperthermia treatments as well. And so it's, it's, like, it's not like that's a weird therapy. It's like that makes the other therapies work better. And they do it right in the hospital. So you're like, you're, and there's plenty of research. It's just, you know. We've got the North American thing where unless we thought it up first, we're not going to do it. But yeah, like fever as therapy, whether your body's making it or you cause your body to make it or we medically induce it, like properly monitored is not only safe, it enhances every other therapy that you might do, you know, um, which which is really, it's just unfortunate that the North American mindset, because it's so anti-fever, had a hard time getting there, you know, and, uh, you know, Coley's toxins are, are very old. That's been done for a very long time, but it's sort of like, well, there's a lot of reasons that they fell sort of quote out of favor in, in, in North America, uh, that we don't need to go into right now, but, uh, they're kind of making a resurgence in other places, but also just medically induced fever is making, you know, and, and that's not new, like in, in Europe and Asia, that's kind of been standard to incorporate in cancer and, and infectious disease for 20 years and some of the other countries I go to. Um, so yeah, it's, and again, it's just like you said about other stuff. You, you can have research that shows anything you want it to show. Um, and we just kind of have a culture that's very slow to kind of take up certain things, which is unfortunate. Well, that's why I'm so grateful for you, Dr. A, and for all of the work that you've been doing in this space to hopefully accelerate that mindset shift that we so desperately need. Well, I'm trying. <laughs> There's a lot of people trying, so that uh, gives us give us a lot to do. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Well, Dr. A, this has been such a comprehensive and wonderful conversation. I could spend hours chatting with you, and I hope to have you on again at some point in the near future. But I do want to be conscious of your time. So where can listeners find you? Yeah, so um, I, I had my web folks make a hub website. So they just have one URL to look at. And then they can get the podcasts and newsletters and all that stuff from the one place. 
and it's just uh, D-R-A, like, like Dr. A, D-R-A-N-O-W.com, DrAnow.com. And that is a gateway to all the other stuff I do. I, I, I have YouTubes I do and other, other media, and, and I talk to people like you, and we have all sorts of links there. So D-R-A-N-O-W.com. I will be including the links for all of those in the show notes. And my last question for you is, what does being well and strong mean to you? You know, I think um, really it goes back to the beginning of our discussion, which is being mindful that there's a lot of things we take for granted that keep our body operating as it should. And those things are often not real, you know, exciting or whatever, but they're what your grandma would tell you, which is sleep and what we put in our body and moving and and being mindful that if we have that as a base, the rest of the things we might do to help ourselves, which are numerous, will just work so much better. And it doesn't matter whether you're preventing illness or trying to stay in remission from an illness or trying to get over a problem it's all the same base. And I, I think that, you know, if, uh, and, and just because of human nature, I think we all have to remind ourselves constantly, these things actually are more important than we believe they are. Uh, so to me, being well and strong is making sure that I'm attending to that real core base and then everything else I do is, uh, is gonna work so much better. Beautifully said. Well, Dr. A, thank you again for your time. I'm so excited to share this with listeners and I hope to have you on again soon. Anytime. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to support the show, please subscribe, leave a rating and review and share it with others. Be sure to visit wellandstrong.com to access notes from the show and to stay current with new content. I'm so grateful you joined me. Be well and be strong.